The passage this morning comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 20. We'll only be reading verses 27 through 40 this morning. You can follow along in your bulletins or in your own Bible. Gospel of Luke, chapter 20, beginning in the 27th verse. There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children, and the second and the third took her, and likewise all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die any more, because they're equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now, He's not God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to Him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask Him any question. Would you please be seated, and would you join me in prayer? Father in heaven, we come before you this morning, we ask that as we look together at your Word from the Gospel of Luke, the words of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, we ask that you would teach us. We ask that your Holy Spirit would give us not only knowledge, but wisdom. We ask that you would show us our sin, that you would show us our need for you, and that you would glorify yourself through the process. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, who is our Lord and Savior. Amen. Well, one more brief thing. If you look at the bottom of this insert, you've got the outline for the sermon. I've also included three questions there, and we've been brainstorming. We haven't been able to have Sunday school for almost two years. That's not by design because we just don't have the space to do it here at the YMCA. So we've been brainstorming, how do we continue to encourage grown-ups and children alike? How do we equip parents and the nurture and admonition of their children? And so one of the ideas is questions that you can read throughout the week. These are three questions related to the passage that will take you deeper into the catechisms, the confessions, into edifying information that will help you to more... Uh, a deeper and greater understanding of the passage. I hope you'll use these through the coming week. Each week you'll see questions that are printed there in the bulletin concerning the passage. This morning's passage, as we look at Luke chapter 20, the question that the Sadducees place before Jesus 
if we're going to understand the passage this morning, we have to understand the tension that underlies the situation that the Sadducees place before Jesus. And the tension that underlies it is very simple. It deals with two significant realities. And here's how I want to place them to you before you this morning. First of all, there is an eternal reality. And that is going to be compared this morning to a temporal reality. Temporal reality. Now, the eternal reality, and it's the word I use to describe it, the eternal reality is the way that things have always been from eternity past and they will be into eternity future. This is how God is among Himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is how the Trinity has always related. This is how things have been before the creation of the world. And it is how things will be after the end of the world. Now the human mind comprehends very little about eternal reality. We'll come back to that. Put a pin in it. There is also temporal reality. And that is God at the beginning in Genesis 1. He creates all things by the word of His mouth. He creates space and He creates time. He creates all that we see with our eyes. And that is what I would call temporal reality reality. It is the way things are as we perceive them. Now, God makes human beings in a very unique way, for they are made as temporal creatures, but they are given an aspect of eternal reality. Most often when we think of the eternal nature of humanity, we think of our souls. Our souls will last forever. Because God has made human beings in this way, there is always a yearning or a curiosity in the heart of man concerning eternal reality. We, we naturally get that, I think. It's why world religions have postulated what, what eternity looks like. It's why so many books and works of art and poems have been written concerning eternity. It's because the heart of humanity is forever curious about what eternity will be like. Now, the heart of humanity cannot comprehend eternal things apart from the revelation of God, okay? And the most important way that God speaks to us about eternal things is through pictures, okay? Through allegory. Let me give you an example of, of a few pictures. God will use temporal images to describe eternal reality. Okay, so first of all, a few images. We've got parenthood. God will make fathers and mothers with children to describe something of the love of the Father for the Son. And we understand then the love of the Father for His children. Okay? Another image, the image of the feast. The feast is a temporal image, one that we experience in time and space. God gives us the image of a feast to describe the marriage supper of the Lamb, which is an eternal reality. You think of the many descriptions that we have of heaven. The streets are paved with gold, and there are diamonds, and there are rubies, and there are gates with pearls, and there are streams of living water. All of these images are temporal images meant to describe something to us of the eternal reality. 
some small portion of what eternity is like. Many of the misconceptions of who God is and what God is doing arise when we try to press too hard temporal images. When we believe that we can understand something of God in eternity because of some temporal image that we press too hard. I can give you many examples, but the one example we need to concern ourselves with arises in this passage. You see, this morning, the Sadducees ask a question about the resurrection. The resurrection is an eternal category. It's not something that we understand in space and time. It is something that deals with eternity. And when the Sadducees are trying to comprehend the resurrection, they relate it to the temporal category of marriage. You heard them ask the question about marriage concerning the woman who had been married seven times. And as is often the case, when we press too hard on temporal images, we misunderstand the nature of reality. And that's what's happening with the Sadducees. They find this complicated scenario they come up with concerning marriage. They ask Jesus the question, and they say, look, it's impossible. One woman, seven men, who will she be married to in the resurrection? Therefore, there is no resurrection. There's no answer to this question. And the image is pressed too hard. In response to this question, Jesus will give two clarifications in this passage that will not only answer the Sadducees, but it will begin to expand our understanding of the eternal nature of resurrection. So this morning we learned something about the resurrection, something that doesn't come naturally to us, and yet we gain great insight and wisdom from the words of Christ in this passage. The first thing then that Jesus will demonstrate, very simple, Jesus will demonstrate that there is indeed a resurrection. That there is indeed a resurrection. Now a little bit of backstory to get you to the point of understanding what's going on in the passage. We begin by hearing about these Sadducees in verse 27. And we find out in verse 27, there came to him some Sadducees, those who denied that there is a resurrection. So we learn very early in this passage that the Sadducees are a group of people who deny the resurrection. They deny the resurrection. Now, you might find this interesting. This is the first mention of the Sadducees in the Gospel of Luke. It's actually the first and only mention of the Sadducees in the Gospel of Luke. It's also the only mention of the Sadducees in the Gospel of Mark. There is no mention of the Sadducees in the Gospel of John, and there are only three mentions of the Sadducees in the Gospel of Matthew, okay? And if you're like me, when you hear that, you're probably thinking, well, I thought the Sadducees were all over the Gospels. They haven't outweighed an uh, over, uh, over-dramatized influence because they are so influential in the aristocracy in Israel, okay? They have a, a power among the elite. The chief priest at this time is a Sadducee. And so, though they're a small group in number, they're influential in the upper echelon of society. Jesus rarely interacts with the Sadducees. There are many differences between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and we we don't have time to spend uh, looking at all of the differences. We can't oversimplify the differences. You might have heard that done before. The Pharisees are the 
the conservatives of the day, the Sadducees or the liberals, or however people have divided that. But there's no way to oversimplify the differences, but we will highlight one very important difference, okay? The Pharisees accepted all of the Old Testament scriptures, the prophets, the Psalms, the Proverbs, the history books. The Sadducees only accepted the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And if you want to understand any of the differences between the Sadducees and the Pharisees, just look to this most important detail, okay? Concerning the resurrection, it's very simple to see why there was such a difference. Because if you're to open your Old Testament Scripture and I was to say to you, hey, go in the Old Testament, find and prove that there's a resurrection, you would begin summing through the Psalms and you would find multiple instances where David would say, the Lord will not abandon my soul to Hades. He will not leave me. He gives me life. David says, I will see my son again. Or the prophets who will speak of a great vision of a a future resurrection, a future life. But if I gave you the task of going to the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, and proving that there's a resurrection, the challenge would become infinitely greater. First five books of the Bible committed to the history of Israel leaving Egypt and to the giving of the law. You can probably see why there's not a ton of chapters concerning the resurrection. And so the Sadducees would say, if we can't find it there, it doesn't exist. Therefore, there's no resurrection. To make matters worse, okay, at this point in time, you've got the Sadducees who deny the resurrection. You've got the Pharisees who historical records indicate had become exceedingly absurd concerning the resurrection, okay? So the Pharisees are not content with there is a resurrection, but rather they have begun debating exactly what the resurrection will be like. Now, here's what some of those conversations were looking like. Will we be resurrected naked or will we have clothes? Okay, that was a big deal to the Pharisees at the time. And once they had concluded that they would have clothes, they began to debate what types of clothes they would actually have, okay? Will it be our nice clothes? Will it be our plain clothes? Will it be greater clothes than we even have now, okay? Then the conversation moved to to disabilities. Will we be resurrected with our disabilities? Once they had concluded that the answer was no, they began to debate what that meant for things that are not even considered disabilities, but are differences, minor differences. Like, you have red hair. I have brown hair, but brown hair is considered better than red hair. Will you have brown hair when you're resurrected? This is all, you can find this in the Mishnah. These are debates the Pharisees were having. Here's another one. This is my favorite, okay? Your animals. Will you be resurrected with your animals, right? And how close do they need to be buried to your body to be resurrected with you? right? It's hilarious. One, I was reading a debate about the animals and the resurrection, and one person who was arguing about this was wondering if there was going to be some chaos in the resurrection with people like, that's my animal. No, that's my animal. That's my goat. You know, like, that that belongs to me, and there's some confusion between animals and their people, okay? So you can see at this moment how the Sadducees denying the resurrection and the Pharisees having the most absurd arguments about what kind of clothes they're going to be wearing in the resurrection. Now, this had caused this great division and conflict between the Sadducees and the Pharisees. 
It reminds me of this conversation I, I once had. There's a, a woman, this is a long time ago, an older woman um, in, our, in our community who I was um, talking about the gospel with. And the conversations were going really well, and I would see her from time to time. And, uh, and she was not a Christian, but was asking me lots of questions she knew as a pastor. It was going great. And this one time she asked me about eternity. She said, do you believe that we have souls that last forever? And I, this is a great question. So we began talking about what Scripture says, and it led to a conversation about the gospel, and I thought it was going really well. And, uh, and she said, you know, at the end of the conversation, she said, you know, I think I agree with you. I think this is great. I think I agree with you because I live in this house out in the county. It's an old house. And most nights when I go to sleep, I feel like I hear voices, okay? And I have told my family there are ghosts in that house. And my family has said, you're crazy. But... If we have souls that last forever, then I do have ghosts in my house. And it all makes sense now, right? And I was thinking, okay, yes, but no, 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 this is not, this is not where I was going, okay? That's the, the conversation that's happening between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. It is likely then that the question the Sadducees asked to Jesus at this moment was a pre-formulated uh, pat question that they were just used to asking the Pharisees, right? You get into a debate about, uh, about the resurrection with a Pharisee, and they're talking about what clothes you're going to wear. Just ask them this question about a, a woman who had seven husbands, and you're going to stump any Pharisee you come across. They're going to say, I got no answer for you. We just, I don't know what to say. Conversation's done. You win the debate, okay? So the Sadducees come before Jesus. They bring this question they've been asking all along. They pose it to him, and they think, man, they have stumped Jesus. They're going to show just how foolish Jesus' perspective on these eternal matters actually is. And so they pose the question to him. You probably got the question. A woman whose husband dies, and according to the law of Moses, she continues to get married. She's married to seven husbands. They all die. Then she dies. Whose husband will she be in the resurrection? And I tell you, the first thing that Jesus will affirm to them is that there is indeed a resurrection. It comes in verse 37. So look at verse 37. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he is not God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Do you understand what Jesus means by that? Well, let me back up. First of all, there's so much that we could learn from Jesus' words just here in verse 37. For example, if we're to summarize Jesus' method of evangelism and apologetics, look at what he does. He speaks the language of the Sadducees. Because Jesus could have gone and read from one of David's Psalms or from the prophet Ezekiel or Elijah or any of the minor prophets or the historical books, and he could have said, look, as a resurrection. But instead, he decides to reason from Moses in Exodus chapter 3. And the Sadducees would have said, yep, that's the gold standard of revelation. Whatever you can show from Exodus is truth. And we accept it as true. And so he speaks their language by sharing this passage from Exodus chapter 3. 
But what is the argument that Jesus makes? Well, He pulls from Exodus chapter 3, the moment when Moses goes to meet the Lord on the mountain, and God speaks to him from the burning bush. And in Exodus chapter 3, at least three times, either God says or Moses says to God, you are the God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Jacob. It's a notorious name for God in the Old Testament, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And what is the very simple argument that Jesus makes? It's so simple and yet so beautiful, okay? If God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, then there are only two options. Because Abraham had been dead for thousands of years, and Isaac and Jacob for hundreds, if not thousands. There are only two options. Either God is a God of dead people. Either He governs a bunch of people who are rotting in their graves and have no life, dust. Or there's a resurrection. Or Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are still living. For God says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not that I was, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so Christ, two sentences pulled from Exodus 3, proves to the Sadducees there is a resurrection. And look at their, their response. And some of the scribes answered, teacher, you've spoken well. For they no longer dared to ask him any question. You know what? I don't know if he convinced them, if they walked away and said, I'm going to give up everything I just believed but being a Sadducee. There's a resurrection. It's obvious. But I tell you the truth, he shut down their argument. They had no good response from the Pentateuch. No answer they could give for Christ has demonstrated that indeed Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob still live. and God is the God of the living. Okay? That's, that's the first thing. Here's the second part of what Jesus does in this passage. He will also deal with a very complicated question that comes out of the, the temporal reality concerning marriage. Now listen to the words He says, and then let's talk about this. Beginning in verse 34, Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. Now, I think, now I know that what often goes through our minds when we read this passage is we begin to think about the things that we won't have in eternity, okay? Because I've heard many people ask this question. Is, is Jesus saying, I won't know my husband or wife in eternity? It's so sad. He's saying we won't be married. We won't remember any of this. And then, and then it continues on, right? Does that mean that my children, I won't know my children in heaven? Does it mean that all of my family who I know and love dearly will have no relationship in heaven. Okay, it's not, first of all, what Jesus is talking about. That's the first point. Jesus, 
uses present active verbs, marrying and given in marriage, to communicate the things that won't be happening in heaven. That is to say, when we get to eternity with the Lord Jesus Christ, we won't be saying, well, I've got to dress my best for the date I'm going on, okay? Got to go find a woman or a man to court so that one day we can get married in eternity. Those things won't be happening, okay? It won't happen in eternity. The Bible, I don't think, is completely clear on the relationship that we will have in heaven with our spouses or our children. I don't think we can make many clear, specific conclusions about what that will be like. But that is to miss the broader reality of what Jesus is emphasizing in this passage. And let me point it out to you like this, and then we can talk about it. Why does Jesus say there will be no marrying or giving in marriage in eternity? What's the reason that He gives? One very specific reason comes in verse 36. There will be no marrying nor being given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore. And then He adds, because they're equal to angels, they're sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. Let me ask you a question. What does the fact that they cannot die anymore have to do with the fact that they will not marry or be given in marriage? How do those two ideas relate? Why does it logically follow that if they cannot die anymore, there will be no marrying? Okay. Well, let me pose it to you like this. And let me ask you to think for a second. What are the biblical reasons that God gives marriage? What are the biblical reasons? I'll give you a few I can think of, Okay. Uh, beginning uh, chronologically in the book of Genesis, first of all, there's a loneliness issue, right? Loneliness. God creates the man. He sees the man after He creates everything else, and He says it's not good for the man to be alone. And so He creates for the man a helper, right? That's the the loneliness issue. Uh, God gives Adam Eve so that he would not be alone. The second thing I think we see as we go through the, the book of Genesis is that there's procreation, Okay, that would be to make more, make more people. And that issue becomes increasingly important when sin enters the world, for we find out that there's an expiration on humanity. That they live and they die, and that there needs to be more to be made to make more worshipers of God to fill and subdue the earth. Right? So procreation becomes important. We move on. I think one of the other things we see in Scripture is that marriage is given for protection for Solomon will say in Ecclesiastes, two are better than one. If one falls down, there's another there to help them up. Okay? So for protection, and that's good. The Apostle Paul will speak about marriage in Ephesians, and what will he say? Marriage is an image. Okay? That's what we were talking about earlier. Marriage is an image. It's a picture of Christ's love for the church. So that when we look at the image of marriage, we find something that is true of eternal reality concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let me ask you a question. Will any of that be necessary in eternity? Yeah, no, you can shake your head no. No, none of it is necessary in eternity. There'll be be no loneliness there. We're not going to be dying, so we're not going to have a need to continue populating or filling uh, uh, creation in the earth. We will be completely protected, right? Right? not going to be like, well, if one falls down, who's going to be there to help them up, okay? 
We will have no need for the image of Christ's love for the church. It will be plain and obvious to us, for He will be there and we will be in His presence, okay? When Jesus puts this argument before the Sadducees, this is what He's saying to them. There, there will be no need for this human conception of marriage, this temporal image of what this is like, because, because it will be real. All of this will be realized in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, here's, here's the point, and here's where we're going to end this morning, okay? What Jesus is emphasizing to the Sadducees is that eternal reality and the resurrection that we spend with the Lord Jesus Christ will be more glorious than we could ever conceive of. It'll be more glorious than we could ever imagine, than we have categories for, than our minds could fathom, than we could describe with the words of this world. No picture of this world will do justice to how glorious eternity will be. And so thus we have images of golden streets. We have images of diamonds and sapphires, but be more glorious than that. And in one very real sense, all of the questions that we could ask about eternity, like the Sadducees asked Jesus about marriage, all of the questions about who we will know and and how we will know them, and will we have houses, or will we have mansions, or will we eat food, or will we make works of art, and will we make music, and and will there be cars, and will there be streets, and will there be a city, and, and what will it be like? All of those questions, in one sense, I think I know the answers to some of them, but in one sense, it doesn't really matter. We won't care. We won't be concerned about whose wife she is or what clothes we're wearing, what color our hair is, whether we have animals there or not. We won't be concerned about that. For the eternity of the resurrection is more glorious than we can comprehend. Let me put it to you like this. Very simple thought, okay? Imagine the best moment of your life. The best moment. Maybe it's like when you had children, or when you were married, or when you went to Disney World, when you hit a home run. I don't know, the best moment of your life where you felt hopeful and joyful and satisfied and content. Now, all you have to do is take that moment and multiply it by a billion and extend it not for a moment but for eternity and you begin to comprehend how glorious the resurrection will be with the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus is emphasizing here. You, You can make all the arguments you want from temporal reality, but you can't comprehend it. You can't comprehend it. I would say as we end this morning, every beautiful promise comes with a, a great warning, right? And, and just, you see, I've written that in the bulletin. It is more glorious or more terrible than we can comprehend. Just as eternity with Christ is more glorious than our minds comprehend, also eternity apart from Christ is more terrible than our minds can comprehend, right? Many people today also debate this. What is hell like? Is there really a hell? Is, is, there, is there a burning, fiery furnace? Do people actually get tortured? Does it last for eternity? Is there weeping and gnashing of teeth? Are you serious? And you know, people try to discount that idea, the biblical idea, okay? All I can say is if the converse of this is true, then a burning, fiery furnace is a drop in the bucket 
compared to eternity apart from Christ. Eternity with Christ more glorious than we can comprehend. Eternity apart from Him more terrible, more tragic than our minds can fathom. The call is very simple. Put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, who He Himself will save you. And when we are joined by faith with Him, our Lord and our Savior, we have the privilege of spending eternity with Him. And it will not be boring, as many have said. It will not be scary. It will not be sad. We will not wonder what we're missing what parts of this world we wish we had in eternity, it will be more glorious than minds can comprehend, than tongues can describe, than any image you can conceive of in this world. It will be perfect. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you. We thank you for your Son, who died on the cross to save us. We thank you that his saving is not only from sin, death, destruction, eternity apart from you, but it is a saving to a glorious, eternal righteousness that is without weight, it is without pain, it is without worry, it is without confusion. We thank you, our Lord and our God, that before the foundations of the earth, you set your affections upon us. You loved us, and you planned in the course of time to send your Son, Jesus Christ. And we thank you that through him we have eternal hope. Now make our hearts yearn for eternity that we would desire you, that we would desire to be with you, and that we would look forward to this day when all wrongs will be made right and where we will spend eternity, glorious eternity, in the kingdom of our Lord, in His presence, without fault or blemish. We will glorify you forever, and we will enjoy you. We love you. We thank you for this time. We ask that you'd be glorified in everything we say and do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.